Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. So greetings and welcome to the War Room Podcast. I'm Colonel Chris Wyatt, Director of African Studies here at the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And today's podcast takes a look at the upcoming national elections in Nigeria on February 16, 2019. As the regional hegemon in West Africa and the Sahel region, with a population of over 190 million and possessing Africa's largest gross domestic product, Nigeria is a colossus in Africa, a country one cannot avoid. With as many as 73 candidates standing for president, one could be excused for wondering who has a realistic chance to win. But there are only two leading contenders, the incumbent President Buhari from the All Progressive Congress candidate and uh, Atiko Abubakar, the former vice president under former President uh, Obasanjo from 1999 to 2007, who represents the People's Democratic Party. Given its size, this election is a significant undertaking. To help our audience get an idea of the scope of this election, we should mention that there are 84,271,832 registered voters in Nigeria, which means that there are more Nigerian voters than the entire population of Germany, Europe's most powerful state. There are 91 political parties contesting, with 73 of them standing presidential candidates. Those 84 million-plus voters will choose among a total of 20,000 candidates for political office, including 1,800 candidates for the 109 senatorial seats, 2,600 candidates for the 360 federal constituency seats, and 14,000 candidates for 991 state constituency seats. I'm here in the studio today with Ambassador John Campbell. Ambassador Campbell is the Ralph Bunch Senior Fellow for Africa Policy Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C. He is the co-author, along with Matthew Page, of a recent book, Nigeria, What Everyone Needs to Know, which was published in July 2018. From 1975 to 2007, Ambassador Campbell served as Foreign Service Officer in the U.S. Department of State. He served twice in Nigeria, first as political counselor from 1988 to 1990, and again as ambassador from 2004 to 2007. Ambassador Campbell, it's a pleasure to see you once again. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back in Carlisle. So in October 2018, you posted an article about the upcoming election in Nigeria. In your article, you mentioned that Nigerian governance is determined by bargains between countries competing but cooperating elites. Could you explain what you meant by this bargain and how does it work? Nigeria is a highly fractionated country. 350 different ethnic groups. Uh, the myth is the population is e evenly divided between Muslims and Christians. 350 different languages. Uh, English is therefore the only legal language. Um, it's the first language of maybe 10% of the population, maybe 50% of the population knows a little bit of it. Society in Nigeria is organized into patronage-clientage networks. Uh, this goes from the very bottom. For example, there's a patronage-clientage network amongst those who picked through the garbage at the Lagos dump all the way to the very top of society. In effect, virtually everyone is the client of someone and the patron of someone. It's useful to think of Nigeria as a whole series of pyramids. The apex of those pyramids are really the movers and shakers of society. Whether there's a military government in place or whether, as now, it's a civilian government in place. I might mention parenthetically 
uh, that there is less difference between military government and civilian government than one might often assume. Because the military, too, uh, have patronage clientage networks. So these patronage clientage networks compete with each other. Uh, they compete with each other essentially at root over access to oil revenue because that's the chief source of wealth in the country. The way you get access to oil revenue is essentially through state capture. In other words, uh, ideally office, but if you can't get office, then government contracts. Now this is important. These patronage clientage networks compete with each other, often quite viciously. There are rules. A primary rule is that you do not bump off the head of a patronage network, but his clients can be fair game. Now, because the source of wealth in the country is oil, and you get access to oil through the government, that means you must preserve the government because that's the means of access. Preserving the government also means you want the government to be weak. You need the government because it provides access to oil. And it is also the venue by which uh, disputes are settled, alliances made, and so forth. So that's a bit of a paradox. You, you have a need, or they have a need for the government to that's exist, right. but they want it paradoxically to be weak enough that it can't control things. And, and that it can't get in, their, get in their way. Get in their way. Now, a consequence of that is with the 350 different ethnic groups and the two major religions, the country is held together. In other words, there was the Biafra War, that, but that's the single civil war that has occurred in the country's history. The reason why Nigeria stays together is that it is in the interest of the people who actually control things that it be kept together. The elites. The elites, that's right. So you said something particularly interesting that I'd like to go a little further into. Um, you mentioned, uh, for the casual observer who looks at Nigeria, there is, of course, this uh, largely a myth based on, on, I believe, what you said there, is that this casual observe, observation that there is a divide between the north and south as if there's just two groupings and it's a Christian-Muslim divide, that being the first thing, which would appear to be a bit of a fallacy if you could elaborate on that in just a moment. The second thing, as you mentioned, that was particularly interesting is that you said that um, whether it's military or civilian, the government's very similar. And there's, it's very often the same people. And the same people. Yeah. So there's, there's certainly a perception for the casual observer that there are frequent military interventions, mm -hmm. but uh, if folks look a little deeper and pull back the curtains, the role of the military in politics has never really been weak. It's always been quite strong. Is that true? That is true, and it's, uh, uh, and it's, uh, and it's true now. Let's talk about the North-South Division for, uh, for just a moment. Um, when the British organized Nigeria into a single colony, the governance strategy they followed was indirect rule, the same as, uh, as they did in India. Why indirect rule? Well, because indirect rule is cheap. 
A fundamental principle of uh, British colonialism in Nigeria was that the British taxpayer was not going to have to pay one cent. Uh, so, in northern Nigeria, uh, essentially society was organized into emirates. You had emirs. You have the Sultan of Sokoto, who was the preeminent one. British were very careful to preserve that whole system, including Islamic courts. Uh, under the British, for example, Sharia, Islamic courts, uh, uh, operated. Because they had to preserve the emirs, they would not allow Christian missionary activity in the north. Christian missionaries were the vector for the introduction of Western education and basically modernity, scientifically based, um, um, based knowledge. They did allow it in the South. And the result is the South is overwhelmingly Christian. Uh, the North remains overwhelmingly Muslim. In the North, there are some Christian mi uh, minorities, not all that many, but there's some. In the South, amongst the Yoruba people, the people who live around Lagos, about half of them are Christian and about half of them are Muslim. The Muslims in Yoruba land, however, were not organized uh, into an emirate structure. So they're very different from the Muslims in the north. They're accustomed to a very different political structure then. Uh, well, and it goes, goes beyond that. Uh, they intermarry with Christians. Uh, Christians and Muslims in Yoruba land keep each other's holidays. Um, that's a lot of holidays. That's a lot of holidays. Uh, Olusogono Basenjo, who was the president when I was there, is a born-again Baptist. His sister is a Muslim. Uh, Obasanjo kept uh, uh, Ramadan, and he also kept Lent. Uh, and nobody saw anything odd about this. This was perfectly normal. In the north, the lines are much sharper. Uh, <clears throat> Christians in the north are seen by the traditional Islamic establishment as a threat or a challenge. And it's in the middle belt, the sort of boundary area between the north and the south, that is where you get the, the most violence, leaving aside Boko Haram. So regarding the office of president, Nigeria is a bit different than other countries. This has something to do with ensuring that the victor has at least a minimum proportion of votes, 25%, um, I believe it is, and wins 24 of the 36 states and a majority of the national vote. That's right. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So can you tell us why the Nigerians have such a complicated system? Uh, people say our electoral college is complicated, but this seems very complicated. Does this have anything to do with the ethnic and religious differences? It does indeed. Um, the consensus in Nigeria is that the military coups that destroyed the civilian government uh, in 1965 and 1966 followed by pogroms against Christians in the north, followed by Biafra's succession and the Civil War, which led to more than two million dead. That the root cause of this was ethnic competition. Okay, how do you manage ethnic competition? Um, the distribution requirements for election to, uh, to the presidency is one way you try to manage it. Another is the two principal political parties that you have mentioned are artificial creations. They were created um, by Obasanjo and by, by, uh, by Babangida at the time, both military dictators, one to be slightly to the right, the other to be slightly to the left. Notice 
no reference could be made to religion or ethnicity. So it's a, it's a coping strategy, if you like, but one which at root has failed because, in fact, ethnic identity uh, is probably stronger now uh, than, it was, uh, than it was 20 years ago. Anecdote. When I first served in Nigeria uh, in 1988, if you went to a cocktail party in Lagos, People wore each other's ethnic dress because they like the style. It's like Scots and, uh, and, and tartans. Now you would never see that. It's no, no longer acceptable no, to do that. you do not it, do the that. The divisions have become so strong. In the, they become so, so strong. The ethnic yeah. identification. So it's identity politics on a large scale. It is indeed. other interesting thing is if, um, uh, if you meet someone in Nigeria... Within about the first 45 seconds, he will signal to you whether he is Christian or Muslim, and he expects you to do the same. There's an expectation there, then. Oh, yeah. There's an expect expectation. Uh, now, uh, he, if he's a Muslim, he will know perfectly well that most Americans are not Muslim. But he will expect you to identify what denomination you're a part of. That's interesting. So I've, I've known a number of Nigerians from my experiences in West Africa, and uh, I have experienced this phenomenon you talked about with the Yoruba, in which you may have uh, the husband may be a Christian, yeah. the wife may be a Muslim, and these families coexist and oh, they absolutely. practice their faith. Does that continue today despite this identity indeed. politics? Well, and <clears throat> the identity pro politics are stronger in the North than they are in Yoruba land. Uh, Yoruba land, the corridor between Lagos and Ibadan, that is the heart of modern Nigeria. Uh, and when you're living there, you're in the modern world. When you're living in parts of the north, you're still in the Middle Ages. So the uh, Boko Haram conflict that's taking place in the northern part of the country, particularly in the northeast, um, is this a factor for this election? I know that in 2015, this was a big issue between Good Luck Jonathan and Buhari. Will this play a large role in the election on the 16th of February? Uh, let's broaden it a bit. Um, security will play a huge role. Security really right now has three, three component parts. There's Boko Haram uh, and Buhari's unfulfilled promise to defeat it. In fact, Boko Haram, as you know, has come roaring back. Secondly, uh, incredibly bloody conflicts in the Middle Belt, ostensibly between Muslim herders and Christian farmers, Muslim Fulani Christian minority tribes. Much of the time, there are more deaths there than there are in the Northeast. But then there's a third issue, and that is there is a major crime wave throughout the country, particularly having to do with kidnapping. Uh, kidnapping uh, as essentially an entrepreneurial uh, enterprise. It's done solely for money. Similar to the phenomenon we had in Latin America for a number uh, that, of years. Yes, that's right. Yeah, not, not very different from that. And it affects lots and lots of people, not just rich people. It goes way down. So they, they'll <clears throat> kidnap people of lower income, and they'll just ask less for that group. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the vast majority of kidnappings are never reported. Uh, the payment of ransom is illegal. Everybody does it. 
Well, that last security issue is one that certainly doesn't get a lot of attention. The, the first one, of course, much of the world knows about Boko Haram. That gets a lot of press, a lot of attention, a lot of international intervention as mm -hmm. well. The, uh, the issue between herders and uh, sedentary farmers that you mentioned, that one, more people know about it, but not a lot. It's That's not right. widely known. But the last issue you've talked about here, this kidnapping thing, is that a recent development just in the last couple of years? Or? Yes, it has. It's gotten much worse over the past two or three years. Kidnapping used to be something that was concentrated basically in the South. It is now spread all over the country. And it's not political. I mean, uh, there is political kidnapping that goes on. Um, but the kind of kidnapping that I'm referring to is um, <clears throat> completely devoid of any political content. It's strictly a matter of money. It's just a way to make money. It's a way to make money. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> I suspect you could chart an upsurge in kidnapping with the dramatic decline in oil prices in 2014-2015 from which the country still has not recovered. So is there any link to groups' ability to do rent-seeking the oil industry because of the price dropping? Is there just simply less revenue for people to reach in and get that? Um, what most observers think is the competition has become more intense um, simply because there is less. So aside from the security issue, which there apparently is quite, quite a concern about, uh, what are the main campaign issues for this election? It's very interesting. Um, first of all, <clears throat> um, to put it right out there on the table, campaigns and elections in Nigeria are not about issues. They are basically about personality and personal and ethnic alliances issues play hardly any role. Minority candidates, Obiasek Wassili, Donald Duke, uh, both of whom have spent a long time in the United States, try to introduce issues into the dialogue. Um, and to a certain extent, they, they, they succeed. I mean, they get, they get a certain amount of press coverage. I see no particular indication has any influence over how people, uh, how people vote. Atiku Abubakar is arguing that many of Nigeria's <clears throat> problems can be resolved through much higher rates of economic growth. Buhari is much more concerned about the poor so that when economists were advocating that Nigeria devalue the Naira, Buhari first refused and then did it only reluctantly and only partially because, he, as he said, in any country where even toothpicks are imported, if you devalue the Naira, what you're doing is you're making the poor poorer. So there's a, there is a perception that Atiku Abubakar is pro-growth and that Buhari is pro-poor. It's easy to overstate that. Um, Buhari is widely accused of being incompetent and of having too narrow a circle of advisors, most of whom are close relatives of his. Atiku Abubakar who was head of the Customs Service for a good many years and is immensely rich, 
uh, is widely regarded as corrupt. Um, by the way, he's never been indicted, much less convicted of corruption. <clears throat> but the perception is that, um, that he, is, he is corrupt. So you see it's those kinds of issues, personality, uh, networks, not, uh, uh, not policies. It's who you know and who you identify with, it sounds. It's who you, who you identify with, who you know. And then, and particularly after the, uh, um, the elections, the state elections last year, um, rigging, how you rig elections, has shifted somewhat. Uh, now, uh, there's a great deal more vote buying. Um, so that that will determine, or, or may determine, uh, how the how the elections turn out. Two ways now you re-elections. One is you buy votes. The other is that you use the security services to intimidate people and to keep them away from the polls. You made reference to 80 million or so um, registered voters. The great concern is that of those who actually show up to vote, the number may only be between 30 and 35 million. So the 2015 election was the first time in the history of Nigeria that an incumbent president lost an election when Goodluck Jonathan of the People's Democratic Party lost the seat to Buhari of the All Progressives Congress. Was this a sign of political maturity yes. or just a one-off? No, this was a, this was a highly positive development. Um, we get a little bit of the credit for that. Um, the then Secretary of State visited Nigeria three times. Um, President Barack Obama uh, uh, intervened publicly twice, uh, arguing for the importance of free, fair, and credible elections. The fact that Good Luck Jonathan conceded to Buhari when it was clear that Buhari had the most votes uh, is highly positive. The question is whether that can be sustained uh, in these upcoming elections. Most people think the upcoming elections will be very close. So I guess we'll see what happens. If we Buhari loses happens. and he leaves office, or if he wins and it's not highly contested, the results, we'll see what happens there. We'll see what happens. That's right. So I have here, we'll wrap up here in just a moment, but I have here a copy of your recent book in Nigeria from last summer. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the book? Uh, why did you write it? And is sure. there anything that might surprise our readers? Sure. Um, the title of the book is Everything You Need to Know About Nigeria. Well, that's so, kind of handy. Uh, it is. So what my co-author and I did was we sat down one very long afternoon and we tried to think what everyone needs to know, not necessarily what is interesting to know or is fun to know or might be nice to know. And we came up with 72 questions. Um, and we then divided the 72 questions into two packages of 36. Each of us was the... Uh, uh, the author of one set. We then swapped sets, went over them again, and then sent them out uh, to outside reviewers. Um, the kinds of questions that we, uh, that we addressed were, um, what is Boko Haram? How important is Christian-Muslim conflict? Where is the Nigerian economy going to go? The idea being, the, uh, the book is intended for, uh, uh, for uh, policymakers, for, uh, for the military, 
uh, for anybody that uh, has a professional interest in Nigeria. The idea is that they go to the table of contents, find the question that addresses what they're really interested in, and they go and they read it. Uh, and it's not going to be very long. It's going to be uh, 1,500, 2,000 words because terribly busy people don't have a whole lot of time. Uh, they just don't. So in some respects, uh, it's uh, it's kind of a primer for those who primer. have professional interest in Nigeria. It is a primer. And for those who are just being introduced to it. Well, Ambassador Campbell, I'd like to thank you once again for joining us on the War Room podcast. Thank you kindly for your insights and your views. This election's just around the corner now on the 16th of February, 2019, and we look forward to seeing the outcome. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you so much for having me. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.